0: The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels, roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. If you are a listener that resides in the Albuquerque, New Mexico area, you are going to love what I have to say. I'm going to be joining several of my friends, Nina from Already Gone, Eric from True Consequences, Josh Hammark from True Crime Bullshit, and Charlie from Crimelines, on Sunday, March 5th, 2023, at the Rio Bravo Brewing. From 4 to 7 p.m., you can purchase tickets now for the link in the show notes. I hope to see you there. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. Forensic science is always expanding, and because of its complicated nature, scientists cannot get it right every time, no matter how hard they try or how diligently they work. However, that isn't to say there are no cases of intentional gross negligence and misconduct, such as those handled by Dwayne Deaver. Deaver was a self-proclaimed blood spatter expert who claimed to have worked on more than 500 blood stain cases and written more than 200 reports on blood spatter, as well as testifying in 60 trials. In actuality, he had only testified in four trials and written a total of 47 reports throughout his career. During an investigation into the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigations, it was discovered... Deaver had falsely represented evidence in 34 cases. He was not the only one in his agency to commit such crimes, however. During the same investigation into the NCSBI, it was discovered that there were 200 total cases with misrepresented evidence over a 16-year period. In today's episode, we look at a case that threatens the integrity of a prominent forensic scientist and the groundbreaking case that helped cement that same scientist's career. Okay, on to the show. On August 3rd, 1984, a sweet 19-year-old girl named Joyce Staunchmall had dinner with her family, then waited on her boyfriend to pick her up. Joyce worked at a kennel in the nearby town of Ensonia, and each Friday night, her boyfriend drove her to the kennel, where she spent the night ahead of her 7 a.m. shift. On this Friday night, her boyfriend was having beers at a local bar with his friends, and he called Joyce to say he would be late. The two had a fight because of this, and Joyce left to walk to the kennel in Ensonia on her own, which was more than 5.5 miles away. She was carrying a blue gym bag with an orange work shirt cut off Calvin Klein jeans, a bra, underwear, and socks inside. She also had a small makeup bag containing an Estee Lauder eyeliner and a mascara with her. Joyce's brother encountered her on Squantuck Road, about a quarter mile from their house. He tried to convince Joyce to get in the vehicle with him, but she refused and said, Leave me alone, I'll be all right." Her brother would later testify the time was around 10.30pm, because that was when he arrived home. Though he also said he was not certain about the time, as he had been drunk. Their father said the son arrived home around 10, so it would seem that he wasn't that far off. Joyce's boyfriend then arrived at her home around 11.05 p.m. and went on to drive along the road looking for her. When he didn't find her there, he went to the kennel where Joyce worked and knocked on the door, but she didn't answer. So he raced his engine, then left, assuming she was still mad at him. On August 16, 1984, three days after Joyce was last seen, her sister told their mother Joyce was missing. The very next day, a fisherman found a body in nearby Lake Zor and reported it to the police. Investigators were soon able to determine the body belonged to Joyce Stockmall. A call was placed to the state police barracks shortly after her body was found. During this call, a male voice said that he had got or cut the girl in Southbury but gave no further information to identify himself. On August 17, 1984, an individual went to the state police barracks in Southbury, Connecticut to complain about psychiatric treatment she received at Griffin Hospital. This individual was only referred to as Dee in court documents, so that's how we will refer to her here. Dee suffered from many mental disorders, including paranoid schizophrenia which caused both visual and auditory hallucinations. Two days before she went to the state police, a psychiatrist who was treating Dee found her behavior to be threatening, and because of this, prescribed her additional medications. But this psychiatrist did not give these to Dee, instead giving them to her longtime boyfriend, David Weinberg. However, state police investigators got more than they bargained for at the time Dee walked into the barracks to report the hospital. In the process of reporting her medical mistreatment, Dee told investigators that on August 3rd, she had gone to New York to visit her mother and to start the process of moving out of the home she shared with David Weinberg. While there, she rented a U Haul trailer and drove back to her and David's home on the 4th. However, she and David reconciled and the pair went for a drive along a road close to David's place of employment. He told her he had never been down this road and he wanted to see where it went. They arrived at a secluded location near the Pomparag River, where David revealed to Dee that he had actually been there the night before and had gotten his car stuck. He started wading through the shallow river to reach the opposite bank, and Dee followed him. She watched him stir the remains of a fire, and the pair stayed there for about 20 to 30 minutes before leaving again. Dee also revealed to investigators that David shaved his beard that same day, stopped carrying a buck knife he usually wore on his belt, painted his white tire rims black, and removed a large unique sticker from the hood of his car. All elements of his person that could be considered identifiable information. Unbeknownst to Dee, she had just ended up reporting her boyfriend's possible involvement in Joyce's disappearance and subsequent murder. After she provided this information, she went with investigators to the side of the fire, The following items were found in the fire. A piece of orange fabric, a Calvin Klein button, Calvin Klein rivets, bra closures, the remnants of an Estee Lauder eyeliner pencil, remnants of a small makeup bag zipper, the remains of a mascara brush, part of a burnt sock, and a blue fiber. The piece of orange fabric was examined and found to be consistent with the color, composition, and melting point of the work shirt Joyce wore at the kennel. Police interviewed David Weinberg on August 22, 1984, to try and establish his movements on the night of August 3rd. He said when he left the primetime bar, he took a different route home than Squantock Road, because his car was having transmission problems, and Squantock Road was hilly. Investigators determined his alternate route was 6.7 miles longer, but court records do not clarify if it was as hilly as Squantock Road or not. Two warrants were issued to examine David's body, and one to search his home and car. In his house, they found the aforementioned buck knife, which was determined to be approximately the same size as the murder weapon. There was also a substance on the knife that appeared to be blood. In the trunk of his car, they found a blue fiber that was a match to the one found at the fireside, and a bloody hair fragment consistent with Joyce's unusually fine hair. Additionally, three individuals identified the unknown male caller from the day Joyce's body was found, and they identified him as David Weinberg. David Weinberg was arrested on May 17, 1985, on a murder warrant signed by Judge Charles Gill and held on a $200,000 bond. However, two weeks later, Judge Gill reduced his bond to $150,000. Within just a few days, while still in jail, David was re-arrested on a sexual assault charge from August 1984. Despite this, by July 1985, his bond had been reduced to $100,000, which he was able to post. The trial for David Weinberg began in October 1988. Because of Dee's mental disorders, it had been questioned whether she was competent to testify and if she knew what telling the truth actually meant. However, she was found to be competent, and the judge ruled that Dee could testify against David. The defense attorney still attempted to discredit Dee by placing a large cardboard box on a court clerk's desk in the courtroom. The box contained Dee's psychiatric records, which he later began going through, page by page. He asked her about an incident that occurred in the 1970s, where she allegedly told her doctor she had a secret she could only tell police but Dee did not recall that incident. During this questioning around her psychiatric history, Dee admitted to having hallucinations on August 3rd, at which time she saw a woman with David Weinberg. The attorney responded to this saying that the woman wasn't real, but D argued that she was real. David's defense team brought up a series of contradictions in the evidence being used to implicate David in Joyce's murder. Such as the dimensions of the knife that had been removed from David's house. Questions surrounded the relevance of the knife because the blade was two and a half inches long, but the depth of Joyce's wounds was measured as four inches. The defense also presented witnesses who called into question whether Joyce's boyfriend was at the bar where he said he was on the night of the murder, implying that the police hadn't considered other potential perpetrators and instead, just zeroed in on the first suspect they had, which was David. Another witness argued that a blue blanket, usually in David Weinberg's car, had been given to a victim of a motorcycle accident, so the blue fibers found at the burn site couldn't have come from his car. Jurors were taken to the fire site so they could view the scene for themselves, although prosecutors had never determined where Joyce was actually murdered. During the defense's closing arguments, Joyce's mother stood up and applauded the defense attorney as he spoke. There were several laughs and whispers during his summation because of this, which resulted in the judge ruling that the closing argument order would be reversed. This gave the defense an opportunity to speak without the heckling. Despite this concession by the judge, it ended up being a moot point. After 12 hours of deliberation, the jury found David Weinberg guilty of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison, which equated to 60 years in Connecticut law. As most convicted murderers do, David Weinberg filed as many appeals as he could before he ran out of chances. In 2006, he attempted to have his conviction overturned during a habeas corpus trial, where he challenged his incarceration. In 2010, the Connecticut Innocence Project took a look at his case and found issues that led to the scheduling of a second habeas corpus trial. However, before the trial could occur, the Connecticut State Attorney and the Connecticut Innocence Project reached an agreement, which was all an attempt to avoid an exoneration during a trial. As part of this agreement, David Weinberg accepted his guilty plea and waived his rights to try and get his conviction overturned, or sue the state. In return, he was released with time served, after serving almost 27 years of his 60-year sentence. The problematic evidence that led to this release was that there was male DNA under Joyce's fingernails that did not match David Weinberg. Long-forgotten statements were also found, wherein an unidentified woman said she had killed Joyce. The statement included details that were not known by the public such as the fact that the only thing missing out of Joyce's purse was $20. This woman also said she took the purse and weighed it down before throwing it in Lake Soar. As the defense had argued during the course of the initial trial, the police had not done enough to rule out other suspects, regardless of whether or not David had, in fact, been guilty of the crime. Additionally, the now prominent forensic scientist, Dr. Henry Lee, had testified in the trial that there was no way of knowing if the blood on David's knife was human or animal, when in fact, tests had been done and revealed that the blood was animal. This is only one out of a handful of cases that Dr. Lee worked on that have been called into question in recent years. Dr. Henry Lee was born in China in 1938, then fled to Taiwan with his family when he was 10. As a young adult, Henry Lee worked for the Taipei Police Department, working his way up the ranks to captain. Then, in 1965, he moved to the United States, with less than $100 in his possession, and made his way to John Jay College, where he graduated with a degree in forensic science in 1972. He later attended New York University, where he earned his doctorate. After starting his career by working as an expert for the defense, He was named the director of the Connecticut State Crime Lab in 1979. At the time, forensic scientists responded to crime scenes at all hours of the day and night. Dr. Henry Lee proved to be an affable and persuasive witness on the stand, and eventually was called to testify in high-profile cases, such as the O.J. Simpson trial, the Phil Spector trial, and many more. So by 1986, he was a big fish in the state of Connecticut investigating crime scenes, and testifying at murder trials. With Dr. Lee's investigative skills and keen powers of observation, Connecticut successfully prosecuted a murder trial without a body. It was the first time this had ever happened in the state. This landmark case is what we are going to cover now, and you may be familiar with it if you are a Crime's Passion listener. This starts our series called Love Bites, the murder of Hella Crafts. Hi friends, I just wanted to introduce you to a new show that I am a big fan of. Take a listen to their trailer, make sure you follow and subscribe. Hey y'all, it's Damini, woo-woo scaredy cat and host of your new favorite podcast, None of This Is Real. And this is the other one, Sarah, your resident flexible skeptic. We'd like to invite you to sit down on the front porch swing. And tumble down a rabbit hole or two with us. We talk about all things mysterious and weird. Like hauntings, cults, and urban legends, cryptids, science, and conspiracy theories. And then we ask each other the ultimate question, is is any any of that real? real? So whether you're a believer, like me, or a skeptic like me, or a little bit of both, listen every Tuesday. Subscribe to None of This Is Real wherever you listen to podcasts. And always remember, you don't have to believe anything we ever say. But you do have to believe on yourself. Believe Believe all all over over yourself. yourself. Hella Crafts was a Danish flight attendant, born Hella Nielsen, on July 5, 1947, in Charlottenlund, a small town north of Copenhagen. Hella's father owned a gas station and had been a member of the resistance against the Nazis during World War II. Hella's mother was a firm believer that women should work. Hella's parents divorced when she was seven because her father had a mistress, but the pair got back together when Hella was in her 20s. Apparently, mainly so her mother could inherit his estate when he died. Ella was a good student in school, and after graduating, she traveled, working as an au pair in England and France before becoming a flight attendant for a short-lived airline. Hella spoke several languages, and when Pan Am advertised for flight attendants, she was one of eight candidates selected out of the 200 candidates from Copenhagen. She went on to become the head of her class during training in Florida. She was described as reserved, which most friends believed was a Danish trait, but they all said she rarely opened up about the intimate details of her life. On May 24, 1969, Hella met Richard Crafts by the pool of Lenny's Hideaway in Miami, where she was staying during training. Richard was tall, slightly disheveled, and did not fit the profile of airline pilots then or now. His hair was bushy and fell down over his forehead. Hella was smitten and intrigued by Richard Crafts, who was a well-known philanderer. After training, the Pan Am flight attendants were headquartered out of New York to make catching international flights easier. Five or six of them initially stayed in hotel rooms in Manhattan, but looked for a more permanent solution over time. They did not want to live in Manhattan, as it was too scary. So, Hella asked Richard to help them find an apartment. They found one in Queens, and although there were five of them living in a three bedroom apartment, it wasn't too cramped as at least one of them was always on a flight. However, it wasn't long before two of the flight attendants moved out, and Richard's philandering ways necessitated a move for the remaining three. He was dating Hella and one of her roommates. Hella and a roommate used to go to the airport to watch Richard, to see who he left with. One of his other former girlfriends said she used to do the same thing. Another former girlfriend of Richard's said that the attraction was based on how unattainable he was. He ran hot and cold with everyone, including Hella, who he would drop for months at a time, then show up out of the blue expecting her to drop everything for him. And she did saying she loved him and just waited on him to come back to her. Hella believed she was unable to conceive a child, particularly since she and Richard had been sexually active for several years without birth control and she did not get pregnant. The pair had an agreement that they would marry if she ended up pregnant, but that was not what happened. She eventually did conceive, but when she told Richard she was pregnant, he assaulted her and forced her to have an abortion. Hella conceived again, but Richard still refused to marry her, so she arranged to have another abortion. He reconsidered before that happened, and changed his mind and said he would marry her. Hella rushed the marriage as she was afraid that if she gave him too much time, he would change his mind again and cancel their plans. They were married on November 29, 1975, at a friend's house. Many thought Richard was tricked into marriage, and he himself made snide remarks that the baby probably wasn't even his. He did not believe in divorce, so he expected Hella to be perfect in their marriage, or live up to his idea of a perfect wife. Richard had a plan that he would set Hella up in a country house, where they would have more kids and he would continue to sleep around while she cared for his family. He actually succeeded at this, and although they had three children, Richard never stayed faithful to Hella. Richard Crafts was born on December 20th, 1937, and was the eldest of three children of Andy and Lucretia Crafts. Andy was 13 years older than his wife, and it was a well-kept secret that he had been married previously. Richard was a mediocre student and athlete, but attended the University of Connecticut for a year. The academic life was just not for him, so he enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps in 1956, which his parents were very angry about. Lucretia said it was the only thing Richard ever did that made her angry. Richard wanted to be a pilot, and after becoming head of a drill team that traveled around the country, he was accepted into the U.S. Naval Air Training Station at Pensacola. He learned how to fly fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters, but ended up becoming a helicopter pilot as only the best students were assigned as fighter jet pilots. During his assignment in North Carolina, a colleague noticed that Richard sought the company of women, but for satisfaction only. It seems like it was a lifelong trait that Richard did not want a serious relationship. Richard did tours in Korea and Okinawa, and in 1960, he volunteered for a special assignment with Air America. Air America was an airline established in 1946. From 1950 to 1976, the Central Intelligence Agency, or the CIA, covertly ran Air America, particularly during the Vietnam War where they used the airline to provide supplies to countries in Southeast Asia and also assist in drug smuggling in Laos. Air America was also used to carry passengers including civilians, diplomats, spies, war casualties, and even VIPs. They evacuated U.S. civilians and South Vietnamese individuals. It was possibly his time working for the CIA in Asia that would cause Richard Krafts to have nightmares later in life. He would often get up from the table during dinner with Hella and go to another room to cry, without ever explaining why. He would wake up screaming in the middle of the night, and she always assumed it was related to his time in Asia with Air America. Richard left the Marines and went to work full-time for Air America until July 1966. He held several short-term jobs after that, eventually being hired by Eastern Airlines in 1968, a year before meeting Hella. He was a flight engineer because it paid better than being a pilot on small planes. Many of his friends described him as patient and a solid guy, although they also agreed he had a temper. He once went after his future brother-in-law with a two-by-four, swinging the piece of wood and causing a hole in the wall when he missed the man. All of Hella's friends were well aware that he would frequently hit her, and did so in front of friends during a dinner in 1977. As they were eating, Richard reached over and popped a pimple on Hella's nose, causing her to bleed. She kicked him in the leg in response while wearing socks, and then he just calmly punched her, Hella fell to the floor, during which time Richard remained completely impassive. In nineteen eighty, Hella went to a friend's house with two black eyes. She said that Richard had hit her so hard that he had broken his watch and his hand was swollen. Earlier that same year, Richard and Hella had been visiting the same friends when Richard started teasing the other couple's four year old son. Every time the little boy asked what sound a cow makes, Richard gave the wrong answer and the little boy would hit Richard in the thigh. Finally, Richard took the little boy, put him on his lap, and began striking the boy's thighs. In August of 1984, Richard was diagnosed with colon cancer, and surgery to combat this removed 18 inches of intestines, lymph nodes, and part of his liver. He had been grounded until December 1985, and beat the odds of cancer with his last chemo treatment taking place in July 1986. Hella reflected that they had been closer when he was sick, but that was likely because he totally relied on her to care for him. In 1982, Richard became a volunteer or auxiliary police officer in Newtown. He wasn't allowed to make arrests in this role and was really just used to provide escorts and inspect houses. In February 1986, he became a part time officer in nearby Southbury, where he tricked out his own Crown Victoria with lights and radios. In September 1986, Hella visited a Newtown attorney, Diane Anderson, to discuss possible divorce proceedings. She had grown suspicious of Richard when he had snatched the phone bill out of her hands as she was reviewing it. Although she always paid the bills, he said he'd take care of that one, and from then on, the phone bills were not sent to the house. She still managed to get a hold of them and found a New Jersey number repeatedly listed on the bill. She called the number, curious about who the mysterious caller was, and got redirected to the answering machine of someone called Nancy. Hella and Diane discussed finances in this first meeting. Although Richard made three times as much as Hella annually, he insisted that she pay for most of the household expenses, her car and the kids' clothes. On the other hand, Richard had spent parts of his income on a backhoe and a large collection of guns, Many of which he kept loaded. Diane told Hella that Richard would probably have to pay her between 25 to 35 thousand in spousal support and child support, which would equalize their incomes. She also told Hella that they could obtain an ex parte order to have the guns removed, and also suggested Hella just take them out of the house and put them someplace safe. Hella demurred, saying she believed that they would lead to a blow up and she just wasn't ready for that yet. Before she left, Hella told Diane that if something happened to her, it wouldn't be accidental. Hella also told this to a few of her closest friends who were also flight attendants. Diane didn't think much about it because she heard this from many of her divorce clients. Sadly, divorce is very often something that stems from and or leads to many women feeling unsafe. Diane contacted private investigator Keith Mayo about four days after she met with Hella Crafts. Keith had handled hundreds of marital surveillances, and when Hella and Keith met, she asked for him to follow Richard to get proof of his infidelity. He had already discovered the address of someone called Karen, so it was merely a case of hurry and wait during a stakeout. During the first stakeout, Keith and his assistant established that Richard spent the night and then they left as they had to appear in court early the next day. At the next stakeout, Keith and his assistant managed to get photographs of Richard and Karen locked in an embrace for about five minutes. Ella was shown these photographs, which caused her to break down and sob uncontrollably. Keith asked her if she was going to get a divorce, and she said she didn't know. But later, she told Diane she would wait until Richard had his checkup with the oncologist and then she would have him served. Despite everything she had gone through, she didn't want to serve him with divorce papers if the cancer had returned. In the meantime, she took numerous Polaroid pictures to Diane to show the arsenal Richard had in their house. There were a number of racks and two gun safes filled with guns, gleaming and lovingly cared for. In stark contrast, Hella also provided photos of the rest of the house that was in complete disrepair. After his checkup in early October 1986, Richard told Hella that he was going to die from cancer and that he wasn't going to do any further treatments. At the urging of one of her friends, who saw no reason to trust Richard given his track record, Hella contacted Richard's oncologist, who told her that Richard was doing extremely well. Hella was furious and wrote to her mother saying that she could just not trust Richard. On October 14th, Hella contacted Diane and said to proceed with the divorce. The same day, Richard called Diane, but she did not return the call, assuming that he was going to ask if adultery was the basis. He was supposed to be served on November 12th, but Richard claimed the deputy did not show. In reality, Richard had purposefully dodged him. And did so again on November 14th. Ultimately, the papers were not served before Thanksgiving, and shortly thereafter, the divorce case became something else altogether. On December 1st, three of Hella's friends contacted Diane Anderson, stating that none of them had seen Hella since November 18th, which was completely out of character for her. She had failed to show up for several flights and left her children with Richard as well as also missing a Thanksgiving dinner that she had been planning for weeks. Her friends were convinced that Richard had done something to her. The Newtown police were called, but it took a great deal of pressure from both private investigator Keith Mayo and the state police before they would investigate Richard, who, as an auxiliary police officer, was counted as one of their own. Then, as is typical in cases that span jurisdictions, There was the usual pissing contest over who was going to do what. The agencies involved were so territorial that in this case, there were times when they withheld information from each other. But what soon became apparent to all law enforcement was that Richard Crafts had been planning something since October that year when he purchased a 1980 Volkswagen Rabbit without telling Hella. He paid more than twice the Blue Book value, but did not take possession of the car until November 17th. When Hella had found the paperwork on the car and asked him about it, furious he claimed that he had purchased the car for their live-in nanny, stating that she had dented the tercel and the pickup by parking so badly. On November 10th, Richard purchased a brand new dump truck for $15,000, requesting a special pintle hook installed for an additional $350, which he paid for in cash. He said he purchased the truck to lay gravel, but this did not explain the additional purchase as he wouldn't have needed the pintle hook for this purpose, since pintle hooks are used for towing heavy equipment. As the truck was being taken to another location for the pintle hook installation, a fuel link leaked and the dump truck had to be towed, delaying the delivery. Despite the delay, they promised it would be delivered before November 18th, which was when Richard said he needed it. The same day as the truck purchase, Richard began calling Tree Services to inquire about renting a wood chipper. The first location he called was Lavely Tree Service in Norwalk, whose owner said he only rented to friends and so recommended calling Darien Rentals in Darien instead. Richard also ordered a freezer in Danbury, putting down a deposit of $100 in cash. When he picked up the freezer on the 17th, he told the manager to put the name as Mr. Cash, In 16 years, this was the only time the manager ever remembered anyone paying in cash for a major appliance. These three purchase locations were not particularly near Newtown, where the crafts were located. The tree service and rental places that were in Norwalk and Darien, and then the fridge from Danbury. Now, the furthest away of the three being Darien, which was almost 40 miles away. On November 18th, which was also the day that Hella returned from a flight to Germany and the last time her friends recalled hearing from her, Darian Rentals contacted Richard about the wood chipper he had reserved. Richard told the owner that he wanted the wood chipper to clear some land. The owner told him the Toyota would not be able to haul it, so he would need something much larger. In response to this news, Richard insisted the owner should continue to hold the wood chipper for him stating he would pay $260 per day if the owner would hold it. The owner reluctantly agreed, and Richard paid for the transaction with his MasterCard. Late in the day on November 18th, a winter storm moved in, dumping a great deal of snow that caused the power to go out at the Crafts' home in Newtown. Richard took the nanny and the children to his sister's house in Westport, telling the nanny that Hella had left earlier to go to Westport, but showed no concern that Hella had not yet arrived at his sister’s home. The next day he told Hella’s friend Rita that Hella was on her way to Denmark to take care of her ailing mother. He repeated this story a few days later, and when asked for his mother-in-law’s phone number, he simply made up a phone number to call. On November 20th, Richard made several calls to ask about his dump truck, that was supposed to have been delivered two days prior, threatening to cancel the entire purchase if they did not provide a replacement. They did, but possibly with the most conspicuous vehicle to tow a woodchipper with, a large orange and white U-Haul truck with a ball hitch. He contacted Darien Rentals and requested an adapter for the ball. The worker at Darien Rentals said this occasion was the first time he ever had to hook up a woodchipper to a U-Haul. That same day, a motorist saw a woodchipper and truck on Silver Bridge over the Housatonic River. Although the truck's hood was up, the motorist refrained from stopping because of an oncoming car, and also because he resented people for chipping wood into the river. When he passed the truck and woodchipper, he noticed a man crouched down as if to hide himself. On the following day, November 21st, Richard returned the woodchipper and paid the balance on his MasterCard. He then picked up the dump truck and gave the dealer a cashier's check for the balance. Later, he went to work at the police department for a few hours, and the very next day, he was in the air again. By the first week of December, many law enforcement officials believed Richard had something to do with Hella's disappearance. He took a polygraph on December 4th and passed, but because he was so cool and flat, this was even more suspicious than if he had failed some questions. Because he had worked for the CIA, investigators believed he might have taken some type of exotic substance to alter his responses and asked him to provide a urine test to test this theory, but the test was negative. Investigators questioned the nanny, who said that she had noticed a large dark stain on the master bedroom carpet after the 19th, but then only a few days later the rug had been removed. Richard Crafts had also removed the existing bedcloths and purchased new linens and a new comforter. Hella's car was found at the airport, but investigators did not inspect the car, and by the time they decided to take a look at it, it was gone. Investigators theorized this was why Richard purchased the VW Rabbit, knowing in advance that Hella's car would not be available for the nanny to drive. Investigators began looking for the missing rug, even combing through the dump as part of their search a possible match was found, and investigators and volunteers retrieved it for forensic examination. Dr. Henry Lee, head of the State Police Forensic Lab, closely examined the rug, although he knew almost immediately that it was not from the craft's bedroom, as a nanny had reported a floor-to-floor carpet being removed, not the rug that had been found. The author of The Woodchipper Murder, Arthur Herzog, pegged Dr. Lee perfectly as a bit of a showman it seemed as though he would take any opportunity to flaunt his apparent skills. Dr. Lee said they would have to look under the microscope, but even though the rug and carpet had the same backing, the weave was different and there wasn't any blood on it. The day after Christmas, 1986, law enforcement and crime scene investigators searched the Kraft's residence in Newtown. The home was in amazing disarray, with disassembled bunk beds in the dining room all the rugs in the bedrooms removed and mattresses laying on the floor. After the initial pass-through and evidence collection, the master bedroom was rearranged to look the way it had when Hella was still there, and Dr. Lee went to work with the microscope and chemicals. He found droplets on the mattress that glowed blue when tested. 113 items were removed from the house, in a search that lasted 48 hours. Officers left the search warrant on the microwave. The law enforcement agencies were still two warring factors, each refusing to share information with the other. A member of the state police, in an act of desperation, stopped at the police department to ask if anything odd had been reported on the 19th or 20th. A roads department driver reported seeing a wood chipper on River Road in the early morning hours of November 19th. He was certain this was the date because he had been clearing snow he saw the truck and woodchipper again a little later as dawn was breaking, and noticed four to six piles of wood chips along River Road. Investigators went out to River Road to search, and at their first stop found piles of wood chips alongside a letter from a cancer charity with Helicraft’s name on it. In early January, a thorough search began of the area, which included a dive team to search the water. Although a bag of bones was found, It turned out that these were deer bones that had most likely been thrown into the water by a poacher. However, a still chainsaw was found, with the serial number filed off. The chainsaw bar was found sticking out of the sand. The search went on for a week, sometimes for up to 10 hours a day. A partial finger was found, as well as dental evidence. In addition to blood and tissue that was found on the chainsaw blade and some of the wood chips, Dr. Lee recovered almost 3,000 blonde hairs, which matched Hella's hair color. They were also tinted, which led investigators to believe they were from a female who had gone to the salon to get her hair done. Dr. Lee was also able to type the blood as Type O, which happened to be Hella's blood type. On January 13, 1987, Richard Crafts was arrested on a charge of murder. He stalled and refused the police when they came to arrest him, which almost resulted in a standoff situation. He was finally placed under arrest, at which he began weeping about his children. You know, the ones he didn't help raise. Investigators theorize that Richard killed Hella by blunt force trauma in the bedroom, then placed her in the old freezer, which he later dumped somewhere. Once she was frozen, they believed he used the chainsaw to dismember her before placing her in the wood chipper. And trigger warning for my animal lovers out there, Skip ahead about 15 seconds if you can't handle descriptions of what happens to an animal. They thought he might have gotten the idea from an incident that occurred the previous summer when Stephen Felipe, annoyed by a barking German shepherd, knocked out the dog and then put it in a wood chipper with some wood to dispose of it. During the initial investigation and after Richard was first incarcerated, his brother in law, David Rogers, secretly destroyed evidence and worked on finding evidence that Hella had abandoned her children. He left the Crafts home unlocked, hoping it would be ransacked. His motive was that he didn't want Richard to go to prison, for fear he would be stuck raising Richard and Hella's children. However, David finally realized Richard was manipulating him, and he switched teams. Richard's trial was moved to New London. Due to the publicity of the case making it unlikely he would receive a fair trial, and it began in May 1988. After 54 days, the case went to the jury, who deliberated for 17 days before coming back as a hung jury due to one holdout. This man believed that Hella's mother had smiled at Richard's craft in the courtroom as she testified, and therefore inexplicably decided that Richard couldn't be guilty. A mistrial was declared and Richard Crafts remained incarcerated until he could be tried again. The second trial was held in Norwalk in November 1989, and this one resulted in a guilty verdict. Richard was sentenced to 50 years in prison. A year after his guilty conviction, an inmate who had been recently released was arrested on a burglary charge. At the time, he had what appeared to be a note from Richard Crafts, including a diagram of his sister and brother-in-law's home, with an X to indicate where his own gun safes had been placed after they were returned to his family. The note said, Gone all of President's Day week, which was an annual tradition for Karen and David Rogers. The note continued for the released inmate to, Take care of my split, and I'll split with you. Richard, despite being incarcerated, was still scheming for money. On January 30, 2020, Richard Crafts was released from prison to a halfway house, then to a homeless shelter for veterans. He was 82 years old at the time of his release, and, it appears, he is still alive today, as no obituary can be found for him. At his sentencing, Richard Crafts said that there was an explanation for his lack of emotion during the events of the case. He said, I have feelings just like everybody else. Anger, fear, I have them all. I failed to express them because I spent six years in Southeast Asia being shot at almost every day. You get used to holding back, more immune to the outside. I never thought that that was a defect in my personality. There are scant records to show whether Richard underwent any psychiatric evaluation, but his actions and some of his comments tend to point to Narcissistic Personality Disorder, or NPD. A number of examples are as follows. Individuals with NPD require constant admiration, which could explain his penchant for having affairs. They make achievements and talents seem bigger than they are, as might be the case regarding Richard's stories of his time in Southeast Asia. They tend to be preoccupied with having the perfect mate, which would cover his refusal to consider divorce and the need for Hella to be a perfect wife in their marriage these individuals also might expect special favors and expect other people to do what they want without questioning them as could be seen in his treatment of Hella in general as well as his manipulation of his brother-in-law and the inmate perhaps most telling People with NPD usually have an inability or unwillingness to recognize the feelings and wants of others, which could include when Richard beat Hella for being pregnant and then insisted she terminate the pregnancy, as well as telling Hella he would marry her, although claiming the baby wasn't even his. Additionally, individuals with NPD can become impatient or angry when they aren't given the recognition they think they deserve. They can also become enraged or try to belittle others to make themselves feel superior. They have problems interacting with people, which was evident by the way Hella's friends all said he was odd and creepy. They also have difficulty managing their emotions and have a tendency to withdraw in order to deal with them. Richard seemingly did this when he would leave the dinner table and go to the living room to cry. Okay, listeners, thank you again for joining me this episode. As we file away another true crime case. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can follow us on our social media. We're active on Twitter at true underscore cases, Facebook, just search for true crime cases with Laney, and Instagram at TrueCrime Cases with Laney, and of course our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com. We'd love to hear your episode suggestions, so feel free to send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched by Olivia Holmesley and Susie St. John, and written by Susie St. John, with content editing by Jesse Hawk. The book The Woodchipper Murder by Arthur Herzog was used largely for the research into Helicraft's murder, the book is well-written and contains more information than offered here, particularly about Hella's friends and how the investigation likely would not have started without them. And the territorialism of the law enforcement involved, it's really crazy. The book is available to order on Amazon, but I'm going to tag an independent bookseller so that you can support them and find another book to read.